October is a breast cancer awareness month. With everything going around us, 2020 has been a powerful reminder that we are all in it together. Our choices and actions have power to protect us and people around us. The same holds true for breast cancer. By talking about it, by increasing the awareness, we can all unite as a community to make sure every woman has an access to screening, treatment, support, and hope in fighting this battle. Hi, my name is Mona Hardis. I'm an OBGYN practicing in Flint, Michigan. Today, I'm very proud and excited to introduce you to my daughter, Dr. Sai Kiran. Sai is a board-certified general surgeon with fellowship training in breast oncology and oncoplastic surgery. She's practicing at Beaumont Hospital, Royal Oak, Michigan. Because of her expertise in breast cancer, I asked her to join me to chat about breast cancer and debunk some myths associated with breast cancer. There's so much misinformation around this subject that some people actually believe in it and do not seek proper medical guidance. So let's talk about breast cancer. Say, welcome to our podcast, Paging Your Gyno. Thank you for having me. The number one question my patient asks me is what age should they start um, screening and screening with mammograms? So there are various different societies that recommend different start ages for mammograms. The American Society of Breast Surgeons as well as the Society for Breast Radiologists both strongly believe that women should start mammogram screenings at age 40 and that they should have them annually or every single year. These are the guidelines that we stand by and therefore I strongly encourage. You know, American College of OBGYN also recommends the same thing. They say the women should start um, getting their mammograms at age 40. But you know, talking about these mammograms, most of my patients hate getting mammogram. Either they have heard that the mammograms hurt, or if they had had a mammogram before, they say, oh my God, it hurts. I don't want it. So is mammogram the only choice or is there anything else they can do as a screening method? Unfortunately, the mammograms are the best tool and the best screening method for your breasts. If you think about it, your breast is a 3D object and in order for a mammogram to be able to see through all of that tissue, the compression has to happen in order for us to really visualize what's going on. Mammograms are still the best choice for looking at abnormalities such as masses and calcifications. There are some new methods out there now that we are using in addition to the mammogram, one of which being a whole breast ultrasound. But at this time, unfortunately, nothing can replace that mammogram, which every woman should get at the age of 40 and beyond. So let's say the patient has a mammogram 
and after the mammogram you do get a letter everybody gets a letter telling them whether the mammogram was normal or not a lot of time what happens the letter says that you have very dense breast now what does that mean what is a dense breast and should we worry about dense breast so density on a mammogram basically is telling us the amount of breast tissue fibers that you have in relation to the fat content of your breast. Every woman has a mixture of fat and actual breast tissue. On a mammogram, breast tissue looks white while fat looks black. The contrast between these white and black allow us to see if there are any abnormalities on the mammogram. It is a Michigan state law, and I know other states around the country that are now um, mandated to tell a woman if they have dense breast tissue or not. This is not a new thing. You are born with the amount of density, and it usually runs in families. Does it make you more likely to have breast cancer? No, it doesn't. But what it tells us that your mammogram may not be as easily read or things may not be as easily seen in a woman with dense breast tissue as someone that does not have dense breast tissue. Because of this, little things like little tiny breast cancers could be hidden in that dense breast tissue. So it's not that you are more likely to have breast cancer, it's just that you are more likely for these things to be hidden. In order to combat this, uh, we are now adding additional imaging studies for patients with uh, dense breast tissue, such as that whole breast ultrasound that I mentioned earlier. So I heard that if you have a low BMI or you are younger in age, you tend to have more dense breast tissue than uh, women who are overweight. Is that true? Yes, if you think about it, um, like I mentioned, the density is the combination of the breast tissue and the fat content. When you are young, you have um, usually more suspensory ligaments and tightening um, fibers within that breast tissue. As you age, you get what's called fatty replacement of that breast tissue. That's why we don't recommend having mammograms until you're age 40 because prior to that, you are um, have more of this dense fibrous breast tissue. You're also more likely to be having um, periods and changes in hormonal cycles, which um, obviously change the characteristics of your breast tissue during that time, and therefore it's harder to see a good clear picture on a mammogram. The same can be said um, if you have overall increased fat content in your body. Thank you, that's a great information. Now, when a mammogram says there is a lump, how sh- concerned my patient should be? Do you think every br- uh, breast lump is cancerous? Absolutely not. Not every breast um, cancer presents as a lump and not every lump is a breast cancer. On your mammogram, the radiologist score the mammogram based on to based on how suspicious a finding is. The this is written usually at the bottom and it's given a score between zero to six. Depending on the number is how concerned you should be and um, about the finding.
So what about breast cysts? Tell us a little bit about them. Breast cysts are very common. Breast cysts are sometimes just in the normal anatomy and the makeup of the breast tissue. Um, sometimes people will have um, what we call fibrocystic breast tissue, which basically means that their breasts are just lumpy bumpy. Breast cysts are not of a concern if they are what we call simple cysts, meaning that when we look at the mass or the cyst underneath the ultrasound, it looks like a nice round circle which is filled with fluid. Usually cysts will increase around the time of your period, which may cause um, more pain and more symptoms. That's when the fluid fills up the cyst and causes some irritation to the surrounding nerves. They usually go down on their own and they are hormonally related. Cysts are not routinely excised um, with surgery. Um, sometimes if they cause you a lot of pain and discomfort, we can put a teeny tiny needle in and try to remove some of that fluid so that we can get um, some relief on your symptoms. If a cyst looks like it's something more complicated, like there is some solid component to it, or it doesn't just look like that nice round circle with fluid in the center, these we would recommend having a biopsy or maybe even a surgical resection, but that all depends on what it looks like in the imaging. So give us some um, idea, give us some information about getting breast cancer. What are the risk factors and is there anything we can do to reduce the risk? <laughs> Unfortunately, just being a woman, you are at a risk of developing breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women and it occurs in one out of every eight women. So what can we do? Why are women more likely to have breast cancer than men? And it all kind of stems back to estrogen. We all have um, a high level of estrogen in our body. That's what makes us female. Ways to reduce our risk are um, healthy diet and exercise. So we know that the ovaries produce estrogen, but there's also some peripheral conversion of estrogen that happens in our fatty cells. So a healthy diet and exercise to decrease that fat around um, in, elsewhere in our body can also reduce the amount of estrogen that's floating around and therefore reduce our risk of developing breast cancer. Other things that are shown to be a link are caffeine, um, tobacco, and alcohol. Now, I tell my patients, you don't have to completely cut all three of these things out of your diet and your lifestyle, but you should be very mindful as to the amount of alcohol and caffeine that you are drinking. Smoking for other, issue, for other reasons we know is not a good idea and should be um, avoided, if at all. Um, however, everything in moderation when it comes to caffeine um, and alcohol. So talking about this risk, there are so many um, rumors floating around regarding the risk of breast cancer. The commonest question I get asked is about deodorant. What do you want to tell us about deodorant and risk of breast cancer? 
You're right. This is a very common question that I also get asked. The root of this question comes from some ideologies um, that deodorant use with it being a high in chemical content, being applied so close to the axilla or the underarm area where all the lymph nodes live, that sometimes these chemicals can go through the skin or if you're shaving through little nicks in the skin and deposit in the lymph nodes and cause cancer. And these are especially the aluminum containing um, deodorants. So what I'd like to clarify is that there have not been any large uh, patient cohort studies or any scientific articles out there that prove that there is any link between aluminum creating or containing um, deodorants and the development of breast cancer. So this is a complete myth. What I tell my patients though is, you know, just having chemicals in the body all the time, the constant exposure, it's hard to really say if that does or does not cause cancer. But if you're ever in a situation, especially if you're just going to be around the house, you're not planning on, you know, going out and being around or doing any um, significant physical activity, just skip the deodorant every once in a while and just try to limit the exposure. But there's no scientific data or research to say that you could never use it. Oh, that is so good to know. My patients also worry about wearing an underwired bra. They have heard that underwired bra can cause cancer. Is that true? No, that's not true either. I think that the main issue with the underwire bra is that perhaps it's a more of an ill-fitting bra which can cause um, bumps and bruises along that inframammary crease that can cause pain and maybe even you can feel a bump or a mass. I think that my re recommendation is that if you are having pain um, and you use an underwire routinely is to make sure that you're using a properly fitted bra and also see if there is a difference if you switch out the bra for a while in terms of your pain switch it out for a more compressive sports bra type um, bra and see if that makes a difference you know there's a lot of talk about the genetic testing nowadays you can even get mail order genetic testing at home and people want to know can they do that test what of what can you get, tell us about the genetic testing which is available to your doctor's office, who should get it and why should they get it? Every patient that comes through our office or sees any um, breast surgeon or breast care specialist has a prim preliminary risk assessment. And factors that we use in determining your risk above the average woman would be family history, um, the duration of your estrogen exposure, meaning when you started your periods, when you ended your periods, when you had your first child, how many children you had, as well as family history of breast cancers and previous biopsies. Using this information, we calculate if you are at an average risk or a high risk of developing breast cancer. If you are a high-risk patient, and especially with a very strong family history with, of breast, ovarian, pancreatic, and even prostate cancer, we would recommend that you get genetic testing. Genetic testing should be done through a hospital or a center that specializes in genetics. Some of these mail order genetic testing that you can get 
um, are not as sensitive and not as specific as the ones that you would get through the actual hospital or um, medical facilities. Not everybody is a um, candidate for this genetic testing and that's why having a preliminary risk assessment should be done by one of your physicians prior to proceeding with that. Thank you. So now say a patient get diagnosed with a breast cancer. Once it is diagnosed, how soon should she see um, a breast surgeon and be treated? Breast cancer is a big, wide category. Not every breast cancer is exactly the same and behaves exactly the same. It's very personalized. So my advice to anybody that has a diagnosis of breast cancer is that they should get in right away and meet with a breast care specialist, whether it be a breast surgeon, a medical oncologist, or even their primary care physician to make sure that they're going down that route. There are multiple factors that um, get added into the generic diagnosis of breast cancer that sort of help us predict how aggressive or non-aggressive this cancer will be. And that will help in determining what type of treatment you're going to get and when you will get it. So the initial diagnosis, whenever you have it, I would strongly encourage the patient to go seek out a specialist and then hopefully they will be a good plan set in place and she or he will have a better understanding as to how quickly and aggressively it needs to be treated. When the patient gets referred to a breast cancer doctor, um, they are really scared. They really don't know what to expect. Um, what should a patient expect uh, when they come to see you? So when a patient comes to see me, they should expect that they will have a history taken and particularly paying interest to those high-risk features. Um, like I mentioned before, family history, their previous um, breast health, um, any additional surgeries and things like that. We also do a thorough review of all of the breast imaging that you had done, as well as a review of all the pathology and all the different markers of the diagnosis. Then we'll explain exactly what this diagnosis means and the treatment plan that's associated with it. Breast cancer is a multidisciplinary treatment um, team that um, helps you along with this diagnosis. What that means is that it's not just one type of treatment, it's not just the surgery, but sometimes there are other adjuncts like chemotherapy, anti-hormonal therapy, radiation therapy that goes along with it and usually the breast surgeon will um, sit down and explain to you what all these different therapies are and if they um, are needed in your treatment plan or not you know breast plays such an important role in our life as a woman is such a part of our identity as a woman's body that whenever the diagnosis of breast cancer is done, one of the, the biggest and the foremost fear is in woman's mind is losing her breast or disfigurement of her breast. So how do you counsel your patient? 
I absolutely agree with you. I think that this type of surgery is very sensitive because it is right underneath that skin and can potentially change the body contour and the patient's identity as a woman. And therefore, I think that it is not something to be taken lightly. And, um, and that's a very big concern and interest of mine. And that's why I went and did my fellowship training in oncoplastic breast surgery. Oncoplastic breast surgery is the combination of plastic surgical techniques as well as oncologic or cancer removing surgery. Be Thank you, Dr. Kiran, for this wonderful information. I learned a lot today. It's very interesting. And I hope you guys who are listening find it interesting and educational. If you have any questions for me or Dr. Kiran, you guys can DM me on my Instagram, which is a glam gyno, or you can subscribe to this podcast, which is Paging Your Gyno, or um, you, can, um, you can go on my Facebook page, which is a Dr. Mona Hardis, OBGYN, and uh, message me there too. Um, I will uh, talk to you about another interesting subject very soon. Till then, goodbye. I want to become an OBGYN is what I hear from some of my younger patients. And it's very exciting. I get excited to hear that because I think we do need um, women in medicine and in uh, OBGYN especially. But over the years, I found out that not many people know about what it takes to be an OBGYN. Hi, my name is Dr. Mona Hardas, and I'm a practicing OBGYN in Flint, Michigan. I'm in private practice for over 20 years, but I also serve as an associate clinical uh, professor of OBGYN for um, Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. And I decided maybe I should give more information to people about what it, be, what it needs to be done to become an OBGYN. So I decided to talk to two of our physicians in training and uh, I'm going to ask them some questions. Both of them have their unique stories and their unique experiences. And they might educate you guys about um, how, they, how they decided to become an OBGYN. So without further ado, I want to introduce them. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. I want you to introduce yourself to my audience. So we'll start with you, Pooja. Okay, well, um, I'm Pooja Patel. I'm a first-year resident um, in OBGYN at Hurley. Um, and I actually did uh, medical school at Hurley as well. So this will be my third year rotating at Hurley, but first um, as a resident. And my name is Fatima Parsian. I'm also a resident at Hurley Medical Center. Um, I'm a third year in my training. Um, OBGYN is a four-year training, uh, surgical training program. Um, I attended the um, American University of Curbing in St. Martin, and prior to that, I completed my undergraduate at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. So what, what brought you guys to Michigan? 
Um, so for me, I'm actually, I grew up in Michigan. I grew okay. up in Bloomfield Hills. And apart from four years of college, I've lived here most of my life. I lived in California for a couple years. Um, so I'm very familiar with the area. And I actually know a lot of physicians who began their careers in Flint. Um, so I was always interested in the city and the patient population. Um, and so it wasn't really planned to stay in Michigan, but it just, um, as I went on with school and it just naturally sort of fell into place and yeah. I'm glad to stay. Um, I was also born in Michigan. I grew up, uh, I was born in Royal Oak and grew up in Troy. Um, but when I was eight years old, we, um, basically immigrated to California as my dad's a computer scientist. So we went to the Bay Area. So I basically completed high school, undergrad there. Um, but I still have a lot of family in Michigan. So when I was applying for residency, California and Michigan were my main two um, areas of interest because I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be close to family ultimately. So I remember from my days or even sometimes now, people say, oh, you look so young to be an OBGYN. <laughs> Are you sure what you're doing? How many cases have you done so far, right? I'm pretty sure you guys oh, getting asked yes, all the time. Yes. So and I know people don't know what it, be, what it takes to become an OBGYN. So both of you are in a residency training now. So tell my audience how, what, what, what it took for you to get here to this point. So, so, oh, so, so for me, um, I finished high school, went to undergrad. Um, at that time, I was pre-med and I had like strong interest in going into medicine, but my GPA wasn't as strong as I wanted it to be, so I actually did a post-bac program through Drexel. Um, they have a satellite program in Sacramento, so I wanted to stay in California, so I did a year-long program there, and then um, I ended up going to St. Martin to complete medical school, which is four years. Um, so you, for me, it was two years on the island for basic sciences and then two years of clinical rotations in the United States. So I did my rotations in New York um, and California, and then I applied. So um, four years undergrad, four years medical school, and OBGYN is also four years. So a total of eight years of um, post-high school training. Mm -hmm. So I think typically if somebody's asking like pre-college, um, like a traditional path would be an undergraduate degree. Usually that's mm -hmm. four years typically, give or take. Um, then four years of medical school uh, and then whatever residency program you decide to go into varies from three years, OBGYN is four. Um, some are longer mm -hmm. so by the time you're done with your training it's maybe like 12 years of schooling training yeah. that kind like of yeah, so it does. a long time <laughs> yeah yeah so i know when you graduate from your high school there are so many choices out there so why medicine knowing that it takes so long <laughs> to get to what you want to do what attracted you to medicine puja what did you um, decide so you know i I have a lot of physicians in my family and I thought that I would not be going into medicine. Um, I was actually, I went to Northwestern University in um, Chicago 
and I was an English major in college so I didn't really I didn't really know what I wanted to do I had a vague idea about my future what I wanted my life to look like what kind of impact I wanted to have and in my mind um, medicine what I had seen and admittedly like I thought I knew a lot about it because I knew a lot of people doing it but I really didn't know the possibilities the different mm-hmm. career paths but you know what I saw was a lot of training um, for stability in private practice which I think attracts a lot of people to mm-hmm. medicine mm-hmm. and that really didn't seem like something that I wanted to do mm-hmm. so I kind of resisted medicine for a while and um, you know, then I think halfway throughout my college career, I thought, you know, maybe medicine mm-hmm. would be something. So I prepared to, you know, take the courses and the standardized tests, but I still really wasn't sure. And so when I graduated, I moved back home and I just did, you know, a bunch of odd jobs, research, trying mm-hmm. to figure it out because mm-hmm. because it is so long it is. and it's not only is it so long, it's you're committing to a long time in one place right. um, for many years. Mm-hmm. So I think compared to other industries, you feel like you have a lot of flexibility in your early years. So if you do a job for a couple years, you have a contract for two years, you can move to a different city, you can go to a different right. place. And that flexibility just isn't there in medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really wanted to be sure And actually what ended up influencing me to ultimately go into medicine and then also attend MSU was um, the water crisis was happening. Like right as I was graduating college is when everything was really starting to be publicized. Uh And um, that's when I really saw what the physician response to, you know, a big public health crisis could be. Um, the role that they play in um, helping alleviate systemic problems, mm-hmm. advocating for populations. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I started to understand that you have a really unique role as a physician in that you learn things about people's lives that no one else knows. Right. Sometimes you're the only one that they're sharing that with. Right. And you really get a visceral sense of what the problems in a community are Mm -hmm. because you have objective data and labs images you see physical manifestations of what's going on Mm -hmm. but then also emotionally what people are going through and I think that can be a much greater catalyst for change ideas innovation than if you're just looking at like a data set. Um, And so I was really inspired by, you know, what I saw with the Flint water crisis and I started to look into different paths within medicine. Um, And so that's when I really solidified that, you know, I think this is a direction that I want my career to take. Um, And then I ultimately applied a year after I graduated. Yeah, you can make a difference as a physician. Yeah, not just at an individual level, but but both, so. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. 
What about you, Fatma? So, um, I come kind of from an opposite background. I have no doctors in my family, so mm-hmm. everyone is an engineer, mechanical, aerospace, computer scientist, so um, ultimately my route into medicine was a little bit different. Um, my earliest like memory, I've always been into like volunteering and kind of community outreach as well, but I think my initial kind of taste of OBGYN was when I was like, I think I was 12. So my, me and my brother were 12 years apart and he mm-hmm. was born, he was conceived by IVF. And so my mom at that point was 38 years old, high risk OB pregnancy. Um, and I remember going to all her appointments with her and like seeing she had gestational diabetes and um, they were, you know, she got the devastating news that she had to start insulin, which is a huge life changing mm-hmm. moment in a lot of people's lives. So like I would, I have very early memories of me drawing up my mom's insulin and giving her insulin in her belly, oh, wow. which was probably overzealous as a 12-year-old, <laughs> but those were my early memories of just like taking care of someone. And then fast forward, like in high school, I volunteered in the maternity ward as a candy striper, like wheelchairing moms outside of like L&D to their cars. So I've always kind of wanted to help other people. And I think my parents realized that as they in their engineering careers like my mom worked at general motors for Mm -hmm. 20 years and with the auto industry kind of shifting away they wanted me to be in a career that was very stable and like had long longevity so i think there was both me wanting to be a doctor and my parents like kind of instilling the idea into me so for me it was kind of both ways um in college i think uh, in h- hindsight, it's always 2020. Going to UCLA w- was my first choice university, but when you leave a small town, suburbia, and you go to a school of 40,000 people, you kind of you get lost. So I feel like at UCLA, I was taking all those chemistry classes and like physics very early on, and I just didn't handle it very well. So after I left college, I was very. Um, kind of scared that I wouldn't make as a doctor because mm-hmm. I was like well if I don't do well in chemistry or physics you know how, what is that a sign of so that's when I went into the post program and I was much more serious and I saw that I was successful in those classes so mm-hmm. it gave me like some newfound confidence which it ultimately led me to applying to medical school okay. so I initially had the seed of wanting to be a doctor right. but, but in between I was like very scared that I wouldn't be able to succeed uh-huh. um, but doing the post program really kind of reinstilled that foundation for me so is that that experience with your mom made you think that you wanted to be an ob is that the seed was that planted was the then seed was planted uh-huh. and then when i ultimately went into medical school ob was my last rotation as a uh-huh. third year so i went through all the motions of all the other rotations and like i like before getting to ob i was like well my alternative would want to, i would want to do gi because i was i mm-hmm. like procedures and I thought that was interesting, and then the second I saw a delivery, and my uh-huh. OBGYN, I was like, nope, well, this is, it really, it just clicked. Yeah, I Because I yeah. was like, had heard from other people like, oh, OBGYN, life is hard, lifestyle, like, you're never home, you're always on call, so I was like, okay, maybe I don't want to do that. GYN uh-huh. is more kind of, like, normal hours, but then I saw a delivery, and I was like, this is yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Pooja? Um, so I, surgery was actually my first rotation, Uh um, and I really liked the OR, um, and I always knew that I wanted to do something that would lend itself to, 
public health, something with a lot of social issues. I liked the, I liked that Obi was so complicated. Mm-hmm. Like I think um, there's so many um, aspects to it, whether it's, you know, patients deal with a lot of social issues regardless mm-hmm. of the patient population you're dealing with. Right. There's a lot of public health. Um, it was just really, you know, there's a lot of policy implications to things that we see in OB, and I really liked that about it, um, and I think what ultimately solidified it, so I did my OB rotation at Hurley, it was my second mm-hmm. rotation, mm-hmm. Um, and I just had really good, you know, everyone says that when you, when you're on a rotation, you're kind of like trying to find your people. Right. And that's like really how I felt on OB, that it just fit my personality. Uh-huh. I liked the work and it was something that, you know, I probably worked the most hours on my OB rotation of any mm-hmm. other rotation, but I would still choose that over something that was shorter hours or going home earlier or waking up later. And I think that's how you really know mm-hmm. that um, this is the right thing right for thing you. Do, so it yeah. just kind of all fell into place. Right. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. You know, every time people talk about being an OBGYN, it's the time commitment. Mm-hmm. Like you're on call all the yeah. time, day and night. Did that ever scare you, anyone of you, or did anyone of from your family or friends say, oh my God, don't go in OBGYN, you will never be home to your ch- kids or your family, you know? Did, it, did that ever happen to you? Um, for me, so I'm lucky that my parents at least were mm-hmm. very hands-off. They said, just pick whatever what you, want. you want. They had no opinions. Uh-huh. I mean, people did, I mean, when you grow up in a family of a lot of physicians, everyone has opinions about what you should do, and everybody thinks their specialty is the best, (laughs) and I, not so much pushback or telling me not to do it, but um, I did get a lot of advice to just think about it, consider it, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, at the time, I probably didn't give enough thought, because my thinking was... um, you know, I don't have any obligations to anyone but myself. Mm-hmm. I can go geographically. I can be on call. You know, I don't have children. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about that now. Right. And I got some really good advice from a family member of mine who said, what you really have to know about yourself when you're considering a career that is known to be very time intensive is mm-hmm. that you have to think that if something in your life changes, say something happens in your family life where you need to dedicate a lot more time to that mm-hmm. or it just turns out that it's getting too overwhelming with work and everything if you end up having to leave or cut back um because of personal issues are you going to feel like this was all wasted time and you could have spent oh, that time doing something, something else, uh-huh. else mm-hmm. or are you going to feel that was an experience mm-hmm. and you know now I'm in a different phase of my life and that for me was a very good framework of thinking about it and obviously ultimately I concluded that regardless of what happens in the future um, I want to plan for now and mm-hmm. if things change that's fine that's and it'll fine. still be I'll be happy to have had that experience and tried rather than plan for something that hasn't happened yet and may not happen right um 
so that was kind of my philosophy on it. Yeah. Um, and then I also got, um, so I talked to Dr. Omar Young, uh-huh. who is a staff physician in our program, uh-huh. who is a little bit, um, he's more recently out of residency. Correct. Okay. And he also talked about how practice models are really changing within OB. Correct. So yeah. there are a lot of mo- more ways that you can practice these days in a larger group as right. a hospitalist that are more flexible and conducive mm-hmm. to a home life anyway. That's so true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What about you? I think for me, my family was very supportive. Like they knew that I would make the right decision ultimately, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of um, like medical student classmates and like people like when the hospital I was at in New York, the residents who I was working with, mm-hmm. they were, all the internal medicine residents, they were telling me, no, don't do it, you're going to hate it, do internal medicine. There was a lot of pressure because they said I basically wouldn't have a life, but ultimately I knew I wouldn't be happy doing any Anything other else. specialty right. because I I remember like being, not, no disrespect to any other profession, but I remember being on rounds with the hospitalist, uh, like the medicine floors, and I was just so miserable. Yeah. And like they round for like seven to eight hours, <laughs> and I'm like, this is not how I, this is not how I envision my life. And I would rather have a few like extra nights of call a month rather than you know being second guessing my choice for my whole lifetime. So for me, ultimately, my family was very supportive, but I definitely had. Um, some nerves going into it because I had heard so much, you know, you're not going to be happy, but I'm very happy with my decision. Yeah. So tell tell our audience a little bit about what the training involves. What what is, what are the four years, how they are divided and how do you get get trained? You can probably (laughs) better than I can. So with um, OBGYN, it is a surgical subspecialty. So we take care of women inside, during pregnancy and outside of pregnancy. So um, the first two years, um, at least at our program, is dedicated to mostly obstetrics. So um, vaginal delivery, C-sections, you're seeing moms in the clinic during their prenatal care. Um, given our high-risk population in Flint, we see a lot of high-risk so we work closely with the subspecialty of MFM, which is maternal fetal medicine. And then as you um, build on those OB skills, you eventually do um, low-risk GYN surgeries. So um, you're taking care of women with abnormal uterine bleeding, doing hysteroscopies, um, laparoscopies. Um, eventually, as a fourth year, you're doing major cases like hysterectomies. Um, so it's a basically a gradual um, ascension of your skills and so you go from low risk OB all the way to high risk GYN and we have the opportunity to go to Bay City um, and work with Dr. Boyke who's a gynonc so we're seeing cancer patients as well as going to other local hospitals to do more GYN. Um, and then, of course, in our regular um, GYN visits, you're providing women with um, birth control options, you're doing cervical cancer screens with pap smears, so basically take care, taking care of women um, in all facets of life. So what kind of subspecialty uh, training is there? What, what can people do after being an OBGYN? So as I mentioned, there is MFM, which is um, maternal fetal medicine, which is high-risk OB. So that's a three-year fellowship after you complete your OBGYN residency where you basically learn 
to take care of high-risk moms. Some programs, I know, do fetal surgery. Um, there's also um, gynecology oncology, was, which is also a three-year um, fellowship program where you're basically doing all cancer-related gynecology cases. Um, there's REI, which we get to work with Dr. Abuzid in Rochester Hills, who's reproductive endocrinology and fertility, so women who um, are undergoing IVF. Um, what else is there? There's urology, urogyne, urogyne, um, family planning, mm-hmm. minimally invasive gynecological surgery, yeah. MIGS. Yeah. Um, trying to think what else. There's a good handful um, that people can go on to apply for, and, and usually they're three year programs. Right. So during your four years of training, you guys get exposed to all this. And then if you like something, you would decide, okay, I want to further pursue that kind of, right? We get a little taste of MFM because we are high risk, um, a high risk kind of area. So Mm -hmm. we basically see high risk patients every day. Right. Um, We get to do two... Um, two months of REI with Dr. Abuzid. We get to do um, a urogynecology rotation our fourth year, as well as gynecology oncology. Right. Um, and then pre-COVID, we were able to do elective rotations outside um, yeah. to see outside exactly to see if you want to pursue. But right now, um, with everything with COVID, a lot of hospitals have basically kind of paused all electives because of the risk of transmission and low PPE so that's kind of been on hold right so with all this subspeciality um, training available and all these different kinds of things as OBGYN we have to 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 treat and take care of Mm -hmm. during the residency how how do you how do you progress is there a lot of mentoring how do you starting from a first year not knowing anything to be a fourth year where you're supposed to know everything. Uh, How does that progression happen for somebody to know? Well, I think um, for me being like maybe only four months in, Mm -hmm. what I will say is that the transition from being, you just kind of have to step up and do it. Uh There is, I mean, you're never alone. You always have your senior residents, Mm -hmm. your attendings there, the nurses who are very experienced. So you have people around you, but to some extent, you do have to step up and become the decision maker. You can't call somebody for everything. I think you learn that very quickly Mm -hmm. that there are certain things you're expected to take care of on your own. And you're just kind of thrown in and you have to do it. And the thing is, for me, at least my experience is starting out and having to handle things like that. You, at the end of the day, you just build a lot of confidence because you realize you can do it. I think going from being a fourth year medical student to a resident, there's nothing magical that happens in that summer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just kind of a mindset shift Mm -hmm. and a higher level of concentration and focus. Um, But you really do, I mean, the learning curve is steep, but you realize how much that you learn and how much that you actually like already know. Um, And you know, residency is a lot of hours Mm -hmm. and sometimes you wake up and you feel like I don't want to go into work today. I'm really tired, but Mm -hmm. there is nothing that will give you more energy and snap you into focus than 
somebody is calling you and asking you, you know, this patient, this is going on with this patient, what do you want me to do? Right. You will immediately be jarred into focus. So, so I would true. say just being forced to do things really it's uncomfortable but that is just how you grow and i think we're lucky at this program that you have a lot of autonomy mm-hmm. with that security and safety net so you do yeah. always have somebody so that your patients are safe and that you have support mm-hmm. but there is that sort of feeling of i'm here by myself and i need to make this decision mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. i think we do a really good job of simulating this feeling that you're by yourself and you need to know what to do right that really helps you grow in the early months i think unless you are thrown into that you will never make that decision and here you are you're going to be responsible for somebody's life so you really become careful and start thinking and you already have the knowledge from your medical school you just have to implement it so so yeah do you have anything to add to this i mean i think puja really encapsulated that feeling well i remember when i was a first year on night float my chief was in a surgery with the staff attending and they called me for mother baby patient is bleeding and mm-hmm. i come down to find her hemorrhaging and in that moment you you just whip into action you know right. what to do and afterwards you're like okay that might have been a little scary like i you know she, everything right. turned out fine but in that moment you do what you need to do to essentially save the patient's life um but you you become prepared to get to that moment That's so true. i think yeah. um it's it's a it's a sharp learning curve for mm-hmm. sure you learn yeah. a lot in a short amount of time and afterwards you're like wow i a month ago i didn't know that like and so, i did it yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. So I know you guys have long hours but do you guys get any downtime? <laughs> <laughs> and what do you guys do on your not downtime? Sleep, <laughs> eat. Yeah. I think you get a little bit of downtime yeah, every yeah, day. Yeah. I think you what I like about our program is that we have a pretty much a regular when you're on service a regular schedule, schedule. Uh-huh. every day. Yeah. So you know, we have our morning report at seven. Mm-hmm. You come as early as you need to, depending on how many patients you have to round on. Mm-hmm. And then we have evening report at five. And okay. then the night flow comes on then, and that's when you do transition of care. Uh-huh. And I think that regularity, even though the hours are really long, mm-hmm. just helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I try to take a little bit of time every day to just not do anything right yeah relax. that's important yeah, yeah. self care is really important yeah. self love is important so you guys get some time every day something yeah. to do yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah of course a little bit but and then if like weekends and stuff you guys do as a resident like things together as a residents it's like a little family right when you are in a residency everybody's together 24/7 yeah. so or you are like no i need space from each other let's get away from here i think it's a little bit of both, both like, yeah i've seen i've seen you five days of the week i, I, I need a break yes yeah but you know of course you kind of find your like niche within the big group of residents uh-huh, so uh-huh. i know with my class we'll have like movie night or we cook dinner for each other um and i know the first years are very close too yeah. so i think everyone kind of finds their niche but like i was thinking before medical school i used to like do yoga daily and tai chi mm-hmm. and i used to go out to concerts and i was much more social but uh-huh. like now with your limited hours you have to be very um 
I guess, like, it's less hours, so you kind of get more picky with what you want to do. Um, but I think for me, like, self-care is very important. Mm-hmm. Watching Netflix, watching TV, <laughs> yeah. going to, I mean, pre-COVID, going, I would try to go to all the brunch spots, and, like, you find kind of a new way of life to adjust to your crazy hours, for sure. Yeah. I think the good thing about residency is you know it's temporary. Right. So, like, you can get through anything for a few years. Yes, yeah. And I just think it's really unique. You've never spent so much time with one group of people ever in your life. That's true. And they really do become, like, your family, for better or for worse. Like, we bicker like a family, Mm -hmm. but we also take care of each each other. Yeah. I remember the other day I was on call over the weekend. I was on the day shift. And, um, you know, the night intern came in and then one of our other interns was on ICU and she was taking a break in our call room. And I ended up staying there for like five extra hours socializing because you just really get close Close to to people that you work with for that much of the day. That's true. Yeah. Now, my training was years ago, as I told you, I've been in practice for a while, but I still have these memories. Uh, One of my memories is like when, say, as a fourth year, I'm rounding, I have my residence with him, and if there's even a single medical student, a man with me, the patient would actually consider him to be the doctor and, and would actually address him and not me, the chief. It's like... Just because I'm a woman, you know, it doesn't matter. Maybe I'm a little short. It doesn't matter. Do you guys still have that experience? Has the things changed or are they the same? I would say things are pretty much the same. same. (laughs) So whenever I go into a patient room, I always introduce myself. I'm Dr. Parsian. Is it okay if we come talk to you? And so so many times the patient's been on the phone and she's like, oh, I got to go. The nurse just came. Which the nursing profession is honorable and in no way is it bad for me to, you know, I don't mind. But it's funny because of my age and how I look and mm-hmm. some, if my hair is up I look much younger I don't look like a doctor you know a right to them doctor. Mm-hmm. um and I have done definitely been with medical students male medical students who are much taller than me and mm-hmm. I see them and they're just directing all their questions there you to go them. Yeah. so or like for example the intern who might be a male and I'm like okay I'm the senior resident and right. I call and they direct all their questions to him which it's, you know, at first I used to get very upset by it, and now I, I just kind of brush it off. It is what it is, but I always make it emphasis to introduce the whole team and, you know, address everyone by their title, but I don't know if it's something I'm going to change overnight. <laughs> right, but I think we need to work on it. Yeah, Do you have sure. the similar experience, Pooja, or not I, yet? <laughs> I mean, I've had it a couple times. Uh-huh. Um, not so much that it really bothers me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And... Uh, honestly, what my first instinct when I thought about that was it just really goes to show sometimes like it is a reflection of, you know, our current climate and who we think of when we think of a do- as a doctor. doctor. Yeah. But it also sometimes to me is evidence of like how little our patients are taking in because Mm -hmm. if you think about it Mm -hmm. you're coming in you're introducing yourself with your title and then you're giving them all this information and if they didn't even realize that you were the doctor Mm -hmm. how much of what you told them did they really get up yeah that's true Um, that's true and you know sometimes i feel like women as a as a woman i'm a woman i think women discriminate against 
other women oh, i've seen that with my patients i've seen it with the nurses like you know if it's a male resident and yes. me they would or even male attending and me at this stage in my yeah. life too they would like give him more respect and more uh, a year they would listen to him more than and and it just kind of makes me upset it's like yeah. i worked as hard mm-hmm. i'm as skilled as that xyz next to me why yeah. am i not treated right yeah. i think we need to do something as all of us as a women to change this and i don't know how how to do this you yeah. know i mean i've had situations where labor nurses they are like oh we love so and so who's a male resident and to my face why can't you be more like him and i'm like <laughs> okay that's very offensive because if i if it was the vice versa if i said that to you that would hurt your feelings right. like why just because we're residents and we work 80 hours a week doesn't mean we don't have like feelings right, like, i'm not right. a, i'm not a robot right. so i'm i'm honestly not sure how to address that i think as females we need to come even more equipped and ready with knowledge and like being confident with our information and knowing our information but i don't know how we can change the culture without you know kind of starting bottom up but i think if we if i come prepared with the information and the nurses see i'm at least knowledgeable or whoever sees i'm knowledgeable at mm-hmm. least that will help me but i'm not sure entirely how to change the situation yeah cuz if it's a, if it's a woman and if she is a, like quieter and nicer then it's taken as a weakness yep. but if she is more aggressive then it's taken as oh my gosh she's a big bee what yeah, does she exactly. think you know yeah. so There's we no can never win i feel you know no matter what you do exactly but i think we have more and more women going in obgyn now it used to be such a male dominated field and yeah. now it is more women mm-hmm. so hopefully the things will change yeah. over time maybe yeah. we just have to yeah. hang in there and wait and see yeah. how things go yeah i think i mean it definitely takes time I, this is over years right. there was this um study that i read that was showing power and likability or positively correlated in men and negatively correlated in women so mm-hmm. it's almost like it's just working against you against and it you. just take i don't know if it's that we just need to have our own leadership style mm-hmm. or cuz i just feel like if to get more respect we just try to mimic behaviors mm-hmm. that men exhibit in positions of power i don't think that necessarily works it doesn't yeah um, yeah and so part of it is just a matter of you know finding your style what works for you and hopefully so eventually you see a change yeah so what would you guys tell somebody who's considering an OBGYN training or becoming an OBGYN i would say full heartedly do it it's like i'm i'm very happy with my decision to go into this field delivering babies is like one of the most amazing experiences minus the part of where the baby actually comes out w- waiting those long hours obviously it's not right. yeah. always easy but it's such a rewarding thing um you're taking care of women in their most vulnerable parts of their life like having a baby having a hysterectomy like very exciting and scary times and you get to see them year round for their annual exam so i think it's totally worth it um so i i would my advice would be don't give up there's going to be times where you feel like you're not adequate or you feel like you're not prepared or you made the wrong decision but there is a light at the end of the tunnel um and i think it's one of the most rewarding fields you get to do primary care plus surgery um and you're basically taking care of a very 
um, like half of the population in a focused, narrow scope, for yeah. sure. So I love it. Yeah. Pooja? I would say, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. It's, I mean, you're doing something that most people will never see. Like, you experience births every day, mm-hmm. you're in... Like, you know, if you ask women sometimes what are some of the most important moments of their lives, Mm -hmm. um, the birth of their children is always there. And so it's really special to be part of that. What I would say advice for anybody who's considering it is, I mean, it's an amazing field. I love it. Do it if you have an intrinsic reason to do it. Mm -hmm. So don't do it if because of how you think it sounds or looks Mm -hmm. to other people or money or prestige because you know it's a great field I'm so happy I did it but it's tough Mm -hmm. um there are a lot of hoops to jump through it's a lot of work and the only thing that gets you through hard days is knowing that you made that decision for an intrinsic reason that only you had and it doesn't need to be elaborate it can just be that you find it interesting or you find it cool but if make sure that it's coming from you because that is what will get you through the training i agree i I had classmates in medical school who it was obvious like they were basically pushed into medicine and Uh they ended up dropping out so i think if someone does it for the wrong reason either like somehow they're gonna fall off the grid or like it's they're gonna be yeah. very unhappy so like what Pooja said do it because you want to do it right not because you think it's the right thing or someone told you it's the right thing yeah see medicine is not a career it's for life you yeah, know it yeah, is gonna exactly. be your life yeah. you're gonna be living breathing it every single day yeah. but I can tell you both of you and all to my audience too that um after all these years of doing what I do as an OBGYN, I think it has been the best decision of my life for me. Just today, actually, I was I had this patient who was telling me um, that her 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 I delivered two of her daughters, and the girls are teenagers now. Mm-hmm. And she said the best memory, the happiest memory of my life is that when you delivered, Aww. you know, her daughter's mm-hmm. name. She said and handed it over to me. Aww. She said she started tearing just thinking about that and me too thinking about that I still remember it so you know you you not only uh, touch different women their mental health their physical Mm -hmm. health their self-esteem I do cosmetic surgery so I can tell you even helping them with the with the with the self-esteem makes a huge difference you know you're so fortunate to be able to do that and help so many women in their lives and um, make a difference. You know, sure. little things we do makes a huge, makes a big, huge difference. In so, so I'm glad that you guys, you know, chose this and you are doing it. And I'm happy that I chose this career. Yeah. And I'm doing it, and I hope more people <laughs> end up doing that. But you know, um, let's have more women in this uh, in this Definitely. field. And uh, if anybody has any questions for either me or for Dr. Patel or Dr. Parisian, please. Uh, DM me. Uh, my Instagram is Glam Guy now, or this uh, podcast is called Paging Your Guy now, or just uh, email me. My email is in the bio. Um, and um, call us and let's keep this conversation going. Thank you guys for coming in, and thank you for a fun, con- fun talking to you guys. And I talk to you guys soon. Bye bye.